Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Amen. This is God's word. Let's get joined a hand for reading the scripture. And getting the right translation, that's good, that is important. Morning, everybody. I feel like, uh, oh, I just got the mic there. I feel like, uh, I don't know, when I was growing up, old school in church services, we would have, you know, handkerchief or something for the sweat, because it is, it's a little bit warm and muggy in here. Um, Yeah, so I have the joy of being with you all today and also competing with the largest sporting event the world has ever known. It's a final game. The cup is going on right now. So I want to say, please don't make any announcements or any cheers out loud because I know that people are recording it. And, um, and we, see, we see who showed up here today, all right? So uh, take note of who's not here. We're going to get some accountability calls uh, Monday morning. Where were you, brother? Um, anyways, so I know that that's going on and... Um, Look forward to hearing the outcome there. But um, today, the passage that Joanna read from um, is in 2 Timothy, and I was reading that um, this week, actually, just in a time of personal devotion, and um, really felt like the, uh, the Holy Spirit brought that scripture to the forefront um, as a message for our church uh, and a message for today, and the category I would put it under would be holiness. Holiness. Um, that's what I felt like God was putting on my heart. And uh, if you know anything about holiness, you know it's not really a small subject. It's, uh, it's a lot of subject matter. I mean, just about any book of the Bible is going to talk about holiness and that God is holy and what it means to live a holy life, what that's like. And so I can't cover all that, and I'm pretty sure you don't want me to try to cover all that there is to be known about holiness. Um, If I'm wrong, just let me know. I I can just go. I'll just go. Um, But what I want to talk about is the desire for holiness and, and whether or not Basically, do we desire to be holy? Do we desire to be holy? Has anyone watched the, if you have watched the news or um, just kind of paid attention at all in the last few weeks, um, there was a situation uh, in Thailand with the the soccer team, the boys' soccer team, that was caught and basically trapped in a cave. You guys heard of this? Yeah. Yeah. So there's 12 of them and their coach as well, so 13 people. They go cave hiking, and then there's a massive flood while they're in there, uh, unexpected. And then at first, no one knows where they are or even that they're missing, but then people start to realize, okay, they didn't come back. Where are they? And then they're searching for them. I don't know if you know this. They had no contact with them for nine days. Zero, zero contact, and this team is just... You know, they're kind of alternating using their watches so they can check the time of the day. Um, they're, I don't know, if, I think they might have had flashlights and they used those till the batteries ran out. And um, it's just this amazing, captivating story, right? Because everyone is just like rooting for them and just, am I the only one? It's like, we want to see them get rescued. Like, how is this going to work? Because this is an amazing task and someone's got to do it. And I was reading a little bit about that and um, an, an article about it, and there was a, a guy in England, I think, named Bill, Bill Whitehouse, which is a fun, fun name. Um, and he's just, he's, he's making lunch one day, he's making bacon and eggs, and he gets a call, and it's from the people in Thailand, and they're saying, we need your help. And, and Bill, the reason they called him is because he's the, 
He's like the, the head of the cave rescue team in England. He's one of the most experienced um, cave divers in the world. And then, and then he calls up this dream team of other people who are the most experienced cave divers in the world. And they go, and they go with the Thai Navy SEALs, 100 Navy SEALs that are there. And, and sadly, one of them uh, lost his life. I, I don't know if you heard that story. He came out of retirement to be part of this group to help rescue these boys. And then he lost it. He ran out of air when he was giving them air and um, such a touching story, but, um, you know, it draws us all in, and it, it, I think on the heart level, it's like, I want to help. <laughs> how can I help? But, um, and I think, you know, probably a lot of us feel that, how can I help? Um, but there's a reason I didn't get that call that Bill Whitehouse got, <laughs> um, because I'm not a cave diver. Um, I've been in caves, and I've been diving, but never together. And uh, I don't know, maybe some of you are excellent cave divers. Maybe you could have got that call. But here's why I didn't get that call. Here's my point. I wasn't prepared to answer that call. They needed someone who was prepared. And they had a whole team of people who maybe they never thought they were going to be in that situation. But when it came time and they got the call, they were prepared to do that work. We've been called as Christians to do good works. Amen? Okay, good. We've been called to do good works. We've been blessed to be a blessing. Amen, that's good. And this passage that we read today talks about there's a relationship between holiness and being prepared to do good works. You guys see that? There's a relationship between holiness and being prepared to do good works. 2 Timothy 2, 19 and 21, the passage we read. I just want to um, unpack it over the next few minutes and, and look at what um, this scripture would have for us as a church today. So it says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. So first of all, God's solid foundation, the scripture is giving us a metaphor for the church. Elsewhere, if you look in the New Testament, Paul, the same author, writes about the church as God's building, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And we're talking about God's church stands firm, and it has an inscription on the bottom of it, which is common in the Roman days where Paul was writing this, um, that they would have an inscription on the steps, on the bottom step or on the bottom foundation of the building. And what it would usually say is, this is why we built this building. <laughs> this is why we built this building, or this is a motto of wisdom that's short and can remind you of what this is all about. So this passage, as the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, you know, last week we talked about 1 Timothy, which was also a letter from Paul to Timothy. And, and in, that, in that time, he was encouraging Timothy. And remember, some of you guys remember, he said, fight the good fight. Remember that? No? Okay. Uh, fight the good fight. That was 1 Timothy. This is 2 Timothy, and it's a, it's a few years have passed, and, and the Apostle Paul is in prison again, and he is knowing that he's going to die soon. And so his fight the good fight turns into chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have finished my course. It's a, it's a different tenor that's going on. And so he's writing to Timothy, and he, it's, it's basically like reading. These are some of the last words we have from the Apostle Paul that are written down. And he's writing to Timothy and encouraging him, and he starts out with saying, God's church, that foundation is firm, and it has these inscriptions on it. The first one, the Lord knows those who are his. The first thing that we remember about the church is that those people who belong to God have given themselves to him in such a way that they no longer belong to themselves. They belong to him. They're his. This first inscription reminds us that, you know what, there may be people in the church who are divisive. There may be people in church that are trying to um, um, divide and tear apart or are living secret lives of sin but trying to act like they're Christians. But God, the Lord, knows who are his. God is in control. God is sovereign no matter what. 
and he will be proven right no matter what. The first inscription reminds us this is God's building. We are God's building, and we belong to him. The second inscription shifts, and it talks about our personal responsibility. It says this, Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So the first inscription reminds us God is in control. God's got this. God's holding us. This is God's church, not ours. Come what may. And the second inscription says God's sovereign, but we have a personal responsibility. Does that make sense? That, that when when we claim to be gods and when we belong to him and no longer belong to ourselves, that what that looks like in our lives is a direction of turning away from sin. Turning away from the sin that he saved us from. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. So he goes on and makes a metaphor. He says, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master. That's the Lord Jesus. And prepared to do any good work. So the scripture gives us a metaphor today. Think about it this way. You've got different household appliances, right? Right? Everyone's got all kinds of different tools that you use in your house for different purposes. You've probably got porcelain mugs in your cabinet, and you probably got a porcelain throne in a different room, right? <laughs> different uses, right? You've probably got a brush, right? You've probably got a hairbrush, a toothbrush, toilet brush. You've probably got a, br a brush that you use on the floor called a broom, They've, they've got different uses. You've got pots and pans. You've got garbage cans. You've got different uses for the things in your house. And what this passage is reminding us is that there is a relationship between our holiness and our preparedness or our usefulness in the kingdom of God. How ready we're going to be to do any good work that God puts in our way depends on how much we are devoted to God. Amen? And it's so important that we desire to be holy, not just know what holiness is, that we desire to be holy because holiness is central to what Jesus desires for you, desires for us. Just a few verses in the New Testament on that, Ephesians 5, is talking about husbands and wives, but it says this, Husband, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. First Peter 1.15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, this is from the Old Testament, be holy because I am holy. God is holy. It's not so much one of his attributes as that it helps describe all of his attributes and how we understand him. God is set apart. God is other than us. God is not part of creation. He's not in the wind or in the trees. He is separate from and above creation. He's not tainted by evil. He's not harmed by sin. He's not... He won't die, he won't grow tired, he won't grow weary. Everything, and the reason that we are drawn to God is because he is holy. Because he's everything that we lack and he's everywhere that we're flawed, he is strong and perfect. Amen? Everything that we long for, we find in the beauty of his holiness. That's why we're called to worship him. 
And because he's good and because he's holy, he calls us who love him to be like him, to be holy, to be good, to be set apart so that we can serve him. Jesus said it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Elbow your neighbor and say, get salty. I don't know what else to say there. <laughs> Not that way. But get salty this way. Matthew 5.13, Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount, to his disciples. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus is making a metaphor for his people and how his people, everyone say, that's me. That's us. How we are to interact and engage with the culture around us. And he uses the metaphor of salt. And in those days, you used salt to preserve things. They did not have refrigerators. They did not have the sub-zero deep freeze that we have around today. I don't have one, but some people have one. Um, but they didn't, right? So when they wanted to preserve something or keep it, they would use salt. And salt does two main things. It brings out the best flavor in that meat. It brings out the best of what's already there. And it also preserves against decay. And, thing, and, and it pushes back the, what wants to rot the good flesh, and it preserves it. And what Jesus is saying, that's how I want my people to interact with the culture. I want them to bring out the truly the best of what there is in life. I want them to accentuate the best of what's already there and to call out how I've really called people to live. And secondly, I want them to preserve against decay. But it only works that way. Salt only works that way if it stays salty. If it stays distinct, that's the only way it can bring out the best and preserve against decay. If it blends in and just becomes like whatever it's trying to preserve, there's no point. It's useless, and that's what Jesus says here. You should just throw it on the street because it'll be more helpful. Holiness is not a commodity that we earn. It's not just so we can be pretty on a shelf. It's not so we can have a holier-than-thou attitude. Anybody? Not so we can look down our nose at other people that aren't part of the church or other people that are part of the church. It's not so we can be proud of how salty we are that Jesus called us to be like salt. That's not the point. But Jesus is saying your holiness is directly tied to how effective you're going to be in my kingdom. How set apart and how distinct and how devoted you are to me is going to determine in some way the ways I'm going to be able to use you, the ways that you're going to be prepared to do good works. Useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. How many know we're called to do good works? Ephesians 2, one of my favorite passages, talks about how we're saved. And it says this, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And then it says this, For we are God's handiwork. Another translation says masterpiece. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved by works. Amen? That's not what I'm up here to say. To I'm not up here to say you need to earn your salvation. That's not it. We're not saved by works. It's by grace. That's, that's the gospel. That's why Christianity is unique. We don't say you have to get good to get God. You have to get your ducks in a row, and then you'll get the blessing that this religion offers. No, we have to admit, you have to admit you don't have your ducks in a row. You have to admit that you're not good and you need God. And God gives it to us by grace because of Jesus on the cross. That's why we're saved. Not because of what I did and my good works and I get attached my value to that. No, I attach my name to what he did on the cross. Amen? We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. We are saved 
for good works. What God has done in us, he wants to do through us. Amen? Good works. God wants us to serve people who need serving. He wants us to bring healing to relationships and to bodies that need healing. He wants us to bless people who need to be blessed. He wants us to stand up for righteousness and justice. He wants us to love people. And in order to do those good works, we're called to be holy. We have to be in the world, but distinct from it. We've got to get salty. Amen. <laughs> Second Timothy 1.9, the first chapter of this letter that we're reading today, it says it this way. He has saved us. So who saved us? God. <laughs> he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. That you have been on the mind of God before you ever existed. We're saved by his purpose and by his grace. He's the one who saved us. And you know what? He's also called us to live a holy life. So what is it? What is holiness? Because there's a lot of misconceptions about holiness. And uh, there's not a lot of interest in holiness either. <laughs> Go to the self-help section of, of, uh, of a bookstore or of Amazon.com. And um, look for the words in there that it's going to tell you. It's not going to be holy. You need to be holy to realize your potential. So there's not a lot of interest in it culturally. It, it sounds outdated. It sounds, well, what does it mean? Aren't you just full of yourself if you think you're holy? Who are you to say you're holy? And then on the other side, we got people who say, well, I can tell you exactly what holiness means. <laughs> it's this list of do's and don'ts right here. And if you do these things, and if you wear these things, and if you say these things, and more importantly, if you don't say these other things, you'll be holy. Just perform the list, observe the rules, and your holiness meter gets filled up. And when your holiness meter gets filled up, then God answers your prayers. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I want to make sure that is not what we're preaching today. <laughs> But I'm telling you, somehow that's how we internalize it. Is anyone going to be honest with me? Sometimes we feel like if we, and God does tell us to do things and not do things. But sometimes we feel like that if we do those things and don't do the other things, that God owes us something. But it's not something that God is trying to get from us. It's not something that we're trying to fill up the meter. It's something that God wants for us for our own good. You know, um, I grew up in a tradition of Christianity that's actually called holiness, holiness tradition. And um, there, I'm so thankful for my heritage and what God taught me through that. But, you know, I, we had an idea of holiness, and I had an idea of holiness that it was you do these things and you don't do these things. And, um, but sometimes they just get confusing, you know? Like we couldn't, like you weren't supposed to watch TV but you could have the internet. <laughs> and the reason you weren't supposed to watch TV is because it's worldly entertainment, but you can watch waste, worse stuff on the internet, <laughs> if we're honest, than what you're going to see on TV. Or we had other things where, you know, you couldn't go see a movie at the movie theater because that was an unholy place, but you could watch a movie in your house. <laughs> um, still trying to figure that one out. Um, and I want to be gracious, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that holiness is not something that we can earn or something that we gain or something that gives us some kind of leverage before God. Rules and guidelines are good, and God gives us rules and guidelines, and we must obey them. But God's desire for us is not just to have a list of do's and don'ts from us. God's desire for us is that we would desire him first. That our greatest desire would be for him. Amen? So what is holiness? Most common definition is set apart. Set apart for God. Set apart for 
to focus on one thing, on one task, set apart, like God is set apart and other than us, he's called his people to be set apart. He's called his people to be salt in the world. He's called us to have a desire for him that says, because I belong to Jesus and the Lord knows those who are his, I want to be like Jesus. My greatest desire is to be with God, to become more like Jesus. Psalm 27, 4 says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. When I read that, I want that to be true of me. I want it to be true for me to be able to say, this is my greatest desire. To see God as much as I can. I know I see through a glass dimly, but as much as I can while I'm here on this earth, I want to see God. I want to see the one who has saved me. I want to see the one who has called me to be greater than I could ever be on my own. By his power and by his grace. Amen? So much of holiness comes down to desire. And if we think of it wrongly, we just think it just means to restrain our desires. But maybe it just means to redirect our desires. C.S. Lewis, great writer of the 20th century, had a quote on desire. And maybe you've heard of it. It says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Maybe holiness is about desire, and it's not about just the restraining of desires, but it's redirecting our desires to God. God, whatever I'm looking for in those things that you have called sin, help me to know that I can't, I'm not going to find it there. It's only going to be in you. And it's only going to be in you in infinite measure more than anything else that I could seek for it in. Amen? Holiness means turning from sin, like the passage says, and turning to God. But God's desire is not that your whole life would be about not sinning. God's desire is that you would desire God. With your whole life. He's not called us to just be knots. <laughs> you guys bearing with me? <laughs> I know you're with me. I'm, 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 I'm preaching what God put on my heart today. I know it's not an easy subject. <laughs> You think I woke up saying, God, I want to preach to everyone on being more holy. (laughs) I feel like that would be really pleasant. That would be our best life now if I can just. (laughs) Sorry, maybe that was too direct. But um, no, but I'm preaching what I feel like God put on my heart for me and for this church in the season that we're in. Vince, a few weeks ago when he was preaching about how do we engage with culture? And he read that beautiful verse from Isaiah, and he talked about FDA. I don't know if you guys remember that. He talked about the ways that Christians sometimes get drawn to engaging with culture, and F being fortification, like it's us four and no more. We're going to be holy over here, and the world can go to somewhere. <laughs> We're just going to build a fort over here and, and be holy by ourselves. And then there's domination where it's like, well, we know what's right, and we're going to make everyone else do it. And then there's assimilation where it says it's so important to connect and be um, relating to the people around us who don't know Jesus that we sometimes forget even what it means to be holy. We forget that we're called to be salt and we just blend in to the surroundings. Fortification, domination, assimilation. And I don't know, you, maybe you could ask what, what's your greatest temptation of those? Where do you normally sit? I'm sure we have people in our church that are on 
that are on all sides of it. But as I was thinking about it and praying about it for our church, we have a church that's so focused on wanting to be a blessing in the world and wanting to be on mission that I feel like maybe our biggest temptation is going to be the assimilation. Where it's like, I want to connect. I have a heart for people who are broken and who don't know Jesus. But if we're, if we're not connected, if we're not staying connected to Jesus in that, our risk, I'm not saying we're doing this, but I'm saying the risk there is that we're just going to assimilate. We're just going to be like the ones that we love. It's not wrong to love, but it's that we've got to stay connected to Jesus. And maybe you're more in one camp or the other, but the, the verse I had for that was Galatians 1.10 where it talks about Here's the problem when we're leaning this way is that we, our heart shifts from wanting to please God to wanting to please people if we're not watching it. And people are not who we're called to live for. God is who we're called to live for. Galatians 1.10 says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Vince talked about FDA, but then he talked about what Jesus did, which was totally different than all that, and it was incarnation, carne, <laughs> flesh, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and we saw, when we see Jesus, we see what God is like, that he incarnated it, and he loved people that the holy people didn't love, and he hung out with people that the religious people said, you can't hang out with them. But you know what? He also called those people to be more like God. He exploded the categories as he incarnated. And his followers do that as well. His followers are called to be the word made flesh. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to your school classes, when you go to wherever it is you're going, you're called to incarnate. To be the word made flesh. I was reading an article a few weeks ago about the early church. And the um, article was by a, a, a man named Alan Kreider. And it was about worship and evangelism in pre-Christendom. That's a fun name. Um, but the, the early church, the first few centuries of the church, do you guys know it was um, uh, Christianity was basically an illegal religion? in the Roman Empire. Do you know that? And that, that there was really no social benefit to joining a church or becoming a Christian. You, you would likely lose your business. Actually, when people converted and said, I want to follow Jesus, they knew that I might die for this one day because persecution was rampant. It wasn't all the time, but it was sparse and in different places. And so there was no social reason to say, I want to be a Christian. And yet this illegal religion just kept growing from nothing, from, you know, from the time of Jesus for the first three centuries, it's just growing. The church, they can't squash it out, even though they're killing Christians for believing in Jesus and saying, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And this article was talking about the reputation that Christians had, even though they were hated in the whole empire, they had a sterling reputation for mercy to the poor and for kindness to strangers and for doing benevolence, good deeds to entire communities. They had stories of even there was a civil war breaking out and the Christians weren't on either side, but they served and cared for the wounded on both sides. They were known. And, and, and the article was trying to answer the question, how is it that Christians could live such free lives not caring about what the world around them said about them, what they were allowed to do and not do? How could they live such free lives, not in positions of power, but in the margins of society, on the edges? And that they were living in such a way that was attractive and that they were growing exponentially despite several attempts of trying to be squashed out. How is it? And this article was talking about, he was talking about how their worship services formed the hearts of people to live in such a way. First thing he said was at the at, at many of the this is just common practices, not every church, but just go with me for a second. When they would meet together on Sundays, there would be a deacon at the door 
And that deacon's job was to not let anyone in who wasn't part of the church. (laughs) And I want to pause right here and say, I'm so thankful for all of our guests that are here today. We do not have a deacon assigned to these doors to... um, no, we're so glad that you're here, and I, uh, I was able to meet a few of our guests, and just glad that you're joining us today. But why would they do that? Because it was dangerous. They had to make sure that someone was not going to come in and hurt us while we worship privately. And so someone had that job. But he went on and talked about their other their worship services, and, and specifically how the church grew, which normally... Uh, evangelism would happen through, if you weren't a Christian, you had a relationship or some kind of interaction with a Christian, and the way they lived stood out, and you started to ask them about it. And they said, well, it's because I follow Jesus, and he's my Lord, and this is how we live. And they said, well, I'm interested in that. Well, even then, they didn't just let him come into Sunday. They said, okay, well, we got to do an interview. <laughs> so then the leader of the church would say, okay, so you want to be a Christian? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, they would ask these questions, well, are you willing to give this up? And if it was a no, then it was like, okay, well, not for now. But if they said yes and they wanted to follow, then they would start catechesis, right? Which catechism, it's a time of teaching. And this would not just be like a few weeks. This would be anywhere from one year to three years. And what they would do is they would meet at a spiritual leader's home for an hour every morning before work. And they would learn what Jesus taught. They would learn the words of Jesus. They would learn what Jesus taught. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And that would go on for a year. And then maybe it would go on for a second year. The longest it would ever go is for three years. And then when it would come up to Easter, they would begin a time of fasting and saying, I'm going to dedicate my life to the Lord. And then when it came up past Good Friday to the Saturday before Easter, they they would fast and pray all night. And then at sunrise, and all this time, every time they would go to church, they were only able to see part of the worship service. They would hear the Bible, they would hear the word read and hear the teachings, but they couldn't take part of the other um, parts of the church service. It was, it was kind of private, but then they fasted all night before Easter, and then that morning they would, they would proclaim that Jesus is their Lord, and then that's when they would get baptized. And then for the first time ever, they would take communion. It was so private, they didn't even know what it meant. After they got baptized, they said, you've died to your old life, and now you're alive in Christ. And that communion, the Eucharist that you just took, that represents Jesus' body that was broken for your sin, and his blood poured out, and he rose again to give you new life. That's what that represents. And why did they do all that? Because I, today, I'm not suggesting that we start this process. It's not not the new vision, right? I'm not saying we copy it. We live in a different context. We have a whole bunch of history between us, and then there's all sorts of reasons why we can't do that. But here's why they did it. Because they knew if we're going to make a positive impact in this world, if we're going to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus, if we're going to be salt and light in this dark world, we need people who know how to do what Jesus taught, not just know what Jesus taught. We need to be able to do what he told us to do, not just know what he told us to do. And today, that is what is the same for us, church. It's the same for us. Jesus desires us for our own good and for our own joy to be able to do what he's calling us to do in this word. For the good of the people around us who don't yet know Jesus, that's how they're going to know it. Not when we tell them how much we know about him how great he is up here. It's when they see it. When they see it. And in the information age, I think we have access to more information at our fingertips than any other generation in human history. And I feel like our temptation is going to be that, to know all about what Jesus said, to know all about what it means to be holy, but to not focus on doing it. Doing what we No, incarnating what he's called us to. Luke 6, 46. Jesus' words that pierce my heart today when he's talking about wise and foolish builders. And he starts by saying this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say?
brothers and sisters, that cuts me. There are areas in my life where I know what he's calling me to do. And I know that I call him Lord, but I'm not doing what he says. Am I saying that we need to save ourselves? No. A thousand times no. God saves us by grace, through faith, through our identity with Jesus, identifying with him and what he's done for us. But I am saying we have a personal responsibility when it comes to our holiness. I'm not saying that we can make ourselves holy, but God does call us to turn away from sin. He does call us to cleanse ourselves, like this metaphor says in the scripture we read today. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. God's purpose for you is not just uh, an eternal fire insurance card that you show when you die. God's purpose for you is present redemption, present healing, to For you to be part in the present redemption and healing of other people, your friends and your neighbors and the people you work with and the people you go to school with. The people that you pray for when you go to bed at night. That's why we're called the body of Christ, even though his physical body is not here. We are the body, the hands and feet of Christ. The song that says Christ has no body but yours. We are his body. He is the head. I'm wrapping up. I know I got to wrap up. I know it's World Cup Sunday. One of the biggest clues, one of the biggest clues to how we're called to understand holiness for us is the name that Christians are given in the New Testament. One of the most common names, which is saints. Has you ever read that in the New Testament? A lot of times Christians are called saints. And it doesn't mean the extra special believers. <laughs> Those are the saints. No, it's, it's all believers are called saints. That's the English word we have for it. That's how it gets translated. That we have, have placed our faith in Jesus that, that we're saints. And if you look at the, 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 the Greek word that, that is translated into saints, it, the literal translation of that is holy ones holy ones saints are not extra special folks but it's those who belong to the lord believers are holy what i'm getting to is this holiness is both a status that's conferred on you and a process that you're meant to pursue holiness is both an identity that, that God calls you by the name holy and a journey that he invites you on to walk with him. We have been made holy by the blood of Jesus and we are being made holy as we walk with him. One way I refer to it is the workout work in principle in Philippians 2. where uh, Philippians 2, second half of verse 12, it says this, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I can't do anything if God isn't working in me. But because God is working in me, both not just to do what he calls me to do, but to will, to want it, to want his good purpose for my life. If God is working in me, then I can work out my salvation with humility and fear and trembling and say, God, help me. You've made me holy. Help me to be holy. Fortification says, I'm holy because I did these things. Domination says, you need to be holy, so do these things. And assimilation says, being relatable is more important maybe even than being holy. But incarnation says, I've been set apart, so I set myself apart. I am holy, so I act holy. Can I remind you today that if your faith is in Jesus, you are holy by the blood of Jesus. 
not because of anything you've done. Like that verse we said, uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but by his own purpose and grace. And you've been sent. Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so I'm sending you. You're called to do good works. Now live like it's true. And grow in holiness so you can grow in good works. Be set apart so you can be useful, more useful to Jesus. Prepared for any good work that God brings before you. Does that make sense today? How do we grow in holiness? Well, there are some things we can do. Spiritual disciplines. To pray. To bring our request before God. To believe that he hears us when we talk to him. To spend time in your room when you wake up in the morning praying. When you go to bed at night to pray. To unload that pressure of having to figure everything out in your day and realize that God's with you. Pray. Read the word. Meditate on God's word. Memorize the word. Worship. Sing to God. Rest. Obey God's command for Sabbath rest. But all these things, it's not like magic. This is not something you earn. (laughs) Spiritual disciplines are not something that you're going to earn holiness for. But Jesus said it's like a vine and branches. You guys remember that passage? Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So our goal, how, how we grow is staying connected to Jesus. And the way I think of it is he's the vine, we're the branches, and the spiritual disciplines we have are the trellises that hold up the vine. And make room for God to grow us. But the main thing that I'm preaching on today is desire. Desire to be with God. Desire to be like Jesus. Desire to be transformed and changed. To look like the one who has called us and saved us and loved us. And and here's the thing. We can know it all day. We can know it all day what it means to be holy. But still fall short. In ourselves, we've not been holy. We know what it means to choose wrong. We know what it means to do wrong. We know what it means to fall short. We know what it means. I know what it means to live for myself instead of for God. But Jesus, who is holy, he never chose wrong. You know, I think of it like the, like the cave situation. And I picture myself in that cave of, of sin and shame and fear and it's dark and I don't even know where God is. There's no communication and yet God knows those who are his. And he's, <laughs> he's gone all the distance to get to my heart. He knows where I am and he knows what I need and there was no cost too great for him to hold back from rescuing me calling me to himself and making me holy and making me pure and giving me the chance to live a new life before him. He never chose wrong. He always chose right. He never did wrong, but only did right. And instead of living for himself, he died for me. He died for you. He was set apart for that purpose of reconciling us. I want to end with this passage in 1 Thessalonians. 523 says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this, verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen? He will do it. Church, that's all I got. <laughs> Man. The band can come up, and I want to I close this in prayer. 
And if you, if you would, stand, stand with me as we pray. I don't know, I don't know where um, you're coming from today. I don't know the situation. I don't know what it looked like when, when you woke up this morning. I don't know what was on your heart, whether you were hurting and in pain or whether you were, um, whether you were feeling shame that you felt like you couldn't get rid of or whether you were just afraid to even take the covers down and make it here. I know that it's, each of us is on a journey and it means a lot that you are here. But I do know something. You're here and God is here. And God is working in our hearts right now. I believe it. And so my, my prayer is that for the next few minutes as we sing and as we respond to the Lord that, um, that you would be sensitive and allow Him to do what He wants to do in your life, however He's speaking to you. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, we thank You so much. The one who called us is faithful and He will do it. You will do it. Lord, I thank you for the reminder today that you desire your people to be holy. And Lord, that that's even for our own good and for the good of people around us. I pray that you would bless us today in this time as we respond. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring a sweet conviction, Lord, like only you can. God, I pray that the words I've spoken today are not condemnation, but our conviction and encouragement to turn to you, Lord, to remember that we're called to turn away from wickedness, turn away even from our own sin, and and cling to you because you are so holy, God. And even though our sin has separated us, God, that you've sought us out. We thank you for that. Purify us, strengthen us, increase our desire to be holy, to be set apart the good works that you prepared in advance for us to do, Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.